0: I said four or five weeks ago when we started here that the first three months what I wanted to do was to look at the heart of hope, to look at who we are as a community, to look at our own lives, to deal with some of the junk in our own lives because the tendency is to rush out there and try and save the world out there but if we try to rush out there too quickly without having things in here right we're bringing people into a, an environment which isn't healthy, and, and we won't be healthy going out there. And so what I want to do is this in, in this next uh, three, four weeks leading up to uh, then we'll be doing some talks around Christmas, is just to deal with some issues in our own hearts, to look at our own lives and to see are the things that God wants to do? And this morning, more specifically, are there some things that God wants to? Remove. We uh, moved house, as you know, as most of you will know three or four weeks ago, um, from Port Stewart down here and this I was it 's the fifth move we have done fifth full house move in just over six years. Anyone who has moved house at all knows how horrendous that is um, uh, It is exhausting, it is draining, but every time we move house, I, I find myself asking the same question: Where did all this stuff come from yeah. Like, where did we accumulate this stuff? I don't remember buying it. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing Becky must have. Um, and I, a lot of it we, we haven't used since it was taken out of the box since the last move. Um, and, and we hold on to stuff because we think, well, maybe flares will come back one day. And black and white TVs might be worth something sometime. Uh, and we have so much stuff in our lives and so little of it we actually use. I saw a book and I started reading it yesterday. It's called "Stuffocation." I thought that was a good title. Stuffocation. We're being suffocated by stuff. We have so much stuff in our lives that instead of actually adding to our lives, it drains us. You see, my my background's in advertising and marketing, and advertisers have one job, and that is to make you feel like you need or you desire something. Even if you don't, you will not buy something you don't think you need or that you don't want. And so their goal is simply to create dissatisfaction within you that if you could only have this new TV flat screen, smart TV, this new iPhone X, which I missed out in pre-ordering on Friday because it crashed, this this new uh, suit, this new outfit, this new designer label, this new gadget, this new coat, this new computer. If you could just have this, then your life would be fulfilled. If you could just wear this links aftershave, women would chase you down the street. And I have tried it, and it didn't work. My own wife didn't even chase me. Um, she ran away. Although Africa apparently is nicer. Um, but we're always convinced if we can have this new, then our lives will be better. And, and here's the conclusion that I've come to, that maybe a better life isn't about more, it's about less. That maybe we actually add something to our lives by taking something away, which sounds counterintuitive when you think about it. But maybe the secret to life is not an accumulating more, but in clearing stuff out. And my message today is called this, clear the room. Clear the room. Because what I've found in my own life is that for God to do a work in my own life doesn't always mean adding something to my life. Sometimes it can mean getting rid of something that's there, that's blocking his work in my life. Because let's be honest, most of us, our lives are pretty full. Most of you don't get up on a Monday morning, unless perhaps you're retired, um, and think, how will I fill the week? You know, I just, like, I wonder how I can fill this week up. And even if you are retired, you're probably child stroke-grandparents, or you're trying to navigate all the busyness in the schedule, all the things that you have to do. We feel overwhelmed, overloaded, and overburdened. We're at capacity. And what I want to do is I want to take a few minutes To look at a passage where Jesus literally clears the room. He removes anything or anyone that is not absolutely necessary. We're looking at Mark chapter 5. If you have a Bible, the verses will appear on the screen. Mark chapter 5. Let me begin at verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake. So this is... After the storm on the lake, and they eventually get to the other side, Jesus delivers a man of demons, who's so demon-possessed that even his demons have demons, he, he clears the room in that guy's house of all the evil, all the impurity, all the stuff. And then he, as soon as he's cleared that guy's life out of all the demons, he goes back to the other side of the lake, and a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and and live. So Jesus went with him. So Jesus comes back from this intense deliverance of this demoniac. He's probably just looking a little bit of a rest, but immediately the crowds start gathering around him. They're pressing in. He's under pressure. There's always people looking something from him. I wonder if you feel like that sometimes, that there's just pressure, that there's just need, that there's just things coming at you, draining you. There's people, there's situations, there's circumstances, there's work pressures, and you just feel like everywhere you look, there's need all around you. And we're told that one person stands out in this crowd. And that's a guy called Jairus. He's a ruler of the synagogue. He's basically one of the pastors in the local Jewish church. So people would have known him. He would have been recognized. He would have been quite well respected in the community. And so as, as Jairus moves towards Jesus, people probably moved out of the way said, look, here's Jairus, let him through, let him through. As all these crowds are coming in, they move because Jairus is an important man. And look at what it says. As he gets before Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly. He sees Jesus and he falls on his knees and he begins to cry out, to jesus he pleads earnestly it's a picture of desperation and bear in mind that by this stage already there's this growing and simmering tension between jesus and the jewish religious leaders back a few chapters earlier jesus had healed somebody on the sabbath and it said the jewish leaders went out and plotted how they were going to kill jesus so the jewish leaders are already against jesus what's jairus he's a jewish leader He's coming before Jesus, begging. In other words, what he's doing is he's risking being pushed out of his own community. He's risking being ostracized. He's risking losing the respect of his own people, being alienated. So why does he do it? Because his little daughter is sick. And when your child is sick, there's nothing you won't do. If your child is sick, there's no bridge you won't cross, no... See you won't swim. No distance you won't go. We, we read that in the paper sometimes, don't we, about people who have little children who are sick and they, there's a special treatment maybe in America or some other part of the world and they're trying to raise money. Why? Because when your child is sick, you will do anything. And Jairus's little daughter is sick. In fact, she's dying. And he knows Jesus can do something because look at what he says. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. He knows that Jesus can change things because when Jesus touches things, they're transformed. When Jesus touches things, they are transformed. The only thing standing between his daughter living and dying is this. Will Jesus come with him? Will Jesus go with him? And look at what it says. Jesus went with him. Let's keep reading, 24 and 25. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a man who was there, or a woman who was there, because that would have been awkward for the next line, a woman who was was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. As Jesus begins to move with Jairus, there's still this crowd pressing in on him. Imagine this scene of all these people touching him, all these people pushing in on him, all these people pressing in, all the noise... And then there's this woman, and we all we don't have time to go into her story, but most of us know her story. And she basically jumps the queue. She cuts the line. She has her own desperate need. See, Jairus has his desperate need. His daughter is dying. This woman has been bleeding for 12 years, and no doctor has been able to do anything about it. For 12 years she has run to every place that she thought she would find healing and hope and she has been let down. It says she has spent everything she has on doctors and they have been able to do nothing. And I think that's a picture of our culture today. Our culture is bleeding. Our culture is dying. Our culture is losing hope and they're turning everywhere. They're going to every place. They're trying every self-medication that they think will bring life, will bring hope, will bring healing and it's failing them and they're spending everything. And if they would only go to Jesus. For 12 years, the life has slowly drained out of her. And that's interesting, 12 years. Because we, realize, we find out later, if you read down in the passage, that Jairus' daughter was also high old. 12 years. It's one of those little things I love to see in scripture. I wonder what it's trying to say. But in the same year as his daughter was born this woman started dying. A new life came into the community and life started to drain out. And this woman, she pushes through the crowd. She's tenacious. She's determined. I love the tenacity of this woman. She realizes that this is her moment. Jesus is passing by. If she doesn't grab him now, that's it. Nothing changes. And some of us have those moments in life, those caros moments, those moments of opportunity that if we don't seize them in that moment, they're gone. But we pause, we hesitate, we act out of fear. And this woman, I love her tenacity. I love her courage. Because she's unclean, she's not even meant to be around people. She's not even meant to be touching anybody, but she doesn't care. She is going to get to Jesus no matter what. You know, she's not able to even go into this synagogue that Jairus works in. She's so unclean in the Jewish religious eyes. We don't even know her name. All we know is we, what she's known as, the woman with the issue of blood. Sometimes our conditions can become our identity. Sometimes we've had a condition so long that actually that begins to define who we are. That's the person who's got a past. That's the person who's depressed. That's the person who's got that sickness, that ailment. Sometimes when you've lived with something so long you can't imagine things being any different. And that ailment, that affliction begins to actually define who you are. Here we have Jairus on the one hand. We know his name. He's significant. He's important. He's a somebody. And he's desperate. And here we have this woman. We don't know her name. She's nameless, faceless, insignificant in the world's eyes. And she's desperate. And you know what that tells me? There's a lot of desperate people out there. Desperation comes in all colors, creeds, ages, backgrounds. You can go to the richest part of this local community And you can go to the poorest part of this local community. And you know what you'll find? Desperate people. I think sometimes when we think of desperation, we think of a certain class. A certain type of housing environment. A certain type of people. And we go, well, we'll we'll, we'll go and reach those those desperate people there. You know what? If you go to the houses in this community that are the new bills the ones that are most expensive you will find a lot of desperation in there a lot of people are looking for Jesus they don't just look like they're looking for Jesus (laughs) a lot of the people out there who are searching for God don't look like they're searching for God but they do look desperate there's a lot of people who have woke up this morning with headaches a lot of people who have woke up with regrets from last night And their first instinct mightn't be, I need Jesus. It's, I have no hope. How can I change? Why did I do that again? How can I turn my life around? So we have a man who's well-known, well-educated, well-respected, who's desperate. We have a woman who we don't even know her name. She's a nobody. And she's desperate. And I wonder what the greatest need in your life today is. I wonder if Jesus was physically passing by. If we had got an email this week to say, you know what, Jesus is going to be in Craigavon. He's decided to pass by Rushmere. At 11.30 this morning. I wonder what you would do. I wonder what you would bring to him. I wonder if he could change one thing in your life, if he could transform one circumstance, if he could Change one situation or relationship, I wonder what it would be if he could transform your health, your finances, your relationships, your, your, your depression, your fear, your addiction, your unemployment. I, w- I wonder what you, you, you'd bring to him. And maybe like this woman and this man, the longer the situation has gone on, the worse it's got, the more desperate it's become. But you have still some faith. Like this man and this woman, you haven't given up completely. Yes, you've been disappointed. Yes, you're afraid. Yes, you don't know if anything is going to change, but you still have this bit of faith. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus can do something. You know that he can, you're just not sure if he will. Look at what it says. Jesus went with him. Jesus went with him. Jesus went with him. If you can, if you will, if you could, if you would, and it says Jesus went with him. And I want to say to you this morning, Jesus goes with you. Whatever situation, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, you see, you're all sitting here and you all look pretty good to me. Most of you, 80% of you. And uh, I'll not point out the 20%. Um, But you do. You look like a bunch of people who generally have your lives together, but we're all made of the same stuff. We're dust. We all have broken parts of our lives. We all have places that we keep hidden. We all have those things that, that we compartmentalize. And, and, and we come to church and we put on our best faces and we praise the Lord and we hallelujah and we give a good amen and then we go home. And we go... And I want to say to you that whatever the broken place, whatever the most desperate place is in your life, Jesus doesn't shy away from it. Jesus isn't afraid of it. Jesus says, I will go with you. I will go into that place with you. And look at what it says about the woman with the bleeding condition. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Immediately, her bleeding stopped. Jesus allowed himself to be touched by the untouchable. He allowed allowed himself to be impacted by somebody who was unclean. You see, Jesus isn't like some people. He's not prudish. He's not judgmental about your mess. He's not hands off. He's not afraid of the most broken, dark and desperate places in your life. He's not put off by your mess. In fact, he moves towards the mess. He's not disgusted by the way you've lived your life. He goes with you. He lets you get up close. He meets your need wherever you are, no matter what you've done. Look at what happens, verses 34 to 36. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I love that. What's the first word he calls her? Daughter. Daughter. Because of her uncleanness, in the Jewish religious eyes, she was not able to enter the place of worship. Her identity was that she was an outcast. She wasn't a daughter of Israel. She wasn't a daughter of Abraham. She was was dirty. She was unclean. And Jesus takes someone who everyone has called dirty, and he calls her daughter. That's beautiful. He restores her identity as well as healing her body. Because what I have found is that people might get their body healed, but unless they're healed in here. You see, the scars are often in here, but we deal with the external physical ailment. And very often we can pray for people and we see their bodies healed, but very often within a week or two we see the things starting to go downhill again and we wonder why they were healed a few weeks ago. It's because the outer body has been healed, but the inner soul hasn't been touched. And the greatest scars of rejection and hurt are sometimes in here. And I I love that Jesus cares about the whole person. He doesn't just heal the body. He heals the spirit and the soul. But look at what happens. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. They said, why bother the teacher anymore. Ignoring what they said Jesus told the synagogue ruler don't be afraid, just believe While Jesus restores one daughter we're told that another daughter has just lost her life Like We, we read these stories and we know them, but imagine you're Jairus in this moment Imagine these men have just come to you and and, and said your daughter's dead. She's gone. It's too late. How would you feel? How would you feel about that woman who interrupted Jesus? She kind of stole the miracle, didn't she? She kind of got the miracle that your daughter should have got. At least in our minds, that's how we think, because we tend to think of the miraculous power of God as, as a pie, and if somebody eats the pie, there's no pie left. She got the piece of the pie, and therefore there wasn't any healing pie for his daughter. Instead, why don't we think of God's healing power like an ocean? And if you take a cup out of it, you don't even notice it. Because there's so much more. And look at what they say. Why bother the teacher anymore? Why bother Jesus anymore? Why bother? It's too late. Why bother it's hopeless. Why bother? Nothing's going to change. Why bother? Why bother? Why bother? You know what I've found in my own life? Whenever God calls me to take a step of faith, whenever God calls me to do anything new, whenever God calls me to step up, whenever God calls me to grow, whenever God calls me into something new, there is always a voice saying this Why bother? Why bother? Sometimes the voice is out there from well-meaning people who will say, why bother? We've tried that in church before. It didn't work. Why bother? We've tried to reach those people but they're just not receptive to the gospel. Sometimes the voice is the voice of the enemy, the devil, whispering in your ear, why bother? You'll just fail again. Why bother? You made a hash of it the last time. Why bother? Nobody really cares about that. But what I find most often is the voice of why bother's in here. The voice of why bother is in my past. It's in my disappointments. It's in my discouragements. It's in my feelings of inferiority, inadequacy, and insecurity. Why bother? Why bother trying to change that situation? Why bother trying to improve your marriage? Why bother praying for that sick person? The last three sick people you prayed for didn't get better. In fact, two of them died. Why bother... Trying to reach this community with the gospel of Christ—sure, sure, sure, none of them are going to respond anyway. Why bother trying to get a new job? Just stick at the one you're at. Sure, you've only forty-three more years to do on it, you know, and then you get your pension. Why bother trying to stay pure in a generation that thinks you can look at anything and do anything you want? Why bother? Just go with the flow. Why bother trying to do business with integrity and honesty when everybody else is corrupt? Why bother applying for that job In the last 17 jobs you've applied for you haven't even got a letter back from? Why bother? Why bother trying to get out of debt? You don't even know where to start. Why bother trying to make that change in your life that'll make you feel healthier? Should just, just keep doing what you're doing. Why bother putting your time into preparing another sermon should they don't even listen anyway? Why bother... There's always a why bother. And what I find is if you listen to that why bother, nothing ever changes. If Jesus or Jairus had listened to the why bother right now, what would have been the outcome? The daughter would have died and nothing would have changed. Everything would have been the same. But look at what it says. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. Ignore them. I love this. It says Jesus ignored them. He just acts as if he doesn't even hear what they're saying. That sounds like our five-year-old, doesn't it? You're talking to him and he just ignores you. He just blanks you. Then you say the word chocolate and suddenly... But Jesus just ignores them. He hears them, but he ignores them. And I want to say to you, there are some voices in your life that you just need to ignore. Ignore. Because the voice you listen to will determine your direction, which will determine your destination, which will determine your destiny. And there are some voices in your life that are not from God, they're not helpful, and they're not pointing you in the place that he wants you to go. You see, I have learned this the hard way because I used to feel like I had to listen to every voice. I had to react and respond to every voice. Even if it was an unhelpful voice, a draining voice, an immature voice, someone with their own agenda, or someone who was trying to get me off course to what God had called me to do. I felt I'm the pastor, I'm a Christian, the good Christian thing is to respond to every voice, to reply to every email, and I don't do that anymore. Because what I've learned is this, not every voice needs to be responded to. Not every Facebook post I disagree with needs me to comment on it. Not every Twitter rant needs a reply. I have learned, like Jesus here, that some voices you just need to ignore. And your life would be so much simpler if you didn't reply to that text message. If you didn't reply to that Facebook message. If you didn't get involved in that conversation or that argument or that debate, your life would be so much simple, but you can't help yourself sometimes. You can't ignore it. And then three months down the line, your friendships and your relationships are in ruins and you're thinking, why did I open my big mouth? We need selective filtering. We need to choose what we respond to and what we don't. because if you listen to every voice that comes into your life and you react and respond to all of them you will never do what God is calling you to do. Six years ago, we told people we were moving to Dublin. They said, why are you doing that? You're crazy. Don't move to Dublin. The economy's a mess. Becky will never get a job. Elijah, or, well, Elijah wasn't born. If you have kids, you know, the whole school system's different down there. Uh, just, we had so many people telling us we were mad. The previous two pastors in the church were out of ministry. Uh, the church was about to close. They had no money. They were in debt. They didn't have a rectory. They had nowhere for us to live they didn't even want a leader there was somebody in the church who'd been leading it from the congregation and could they just have him as the leader why would you go there you're crazy it is going to be a we had all these voices telling us why bother don't just don't go then a year ago we had all these voices telling us why are you leaving why are you leaving the church has grown. We have grown 50 to 350. We have a staff of seven. Becky's a senior speech therapist. We have got a beautiful house. We've got a great life. We've got a comfortable life. We don't even have jobs to go to. We have nothing to move to. Why would you do that? Do you know why we did both? Because there was a voice greater than theirs that we were listening to. Some people, and I said this before, why would you move from Port Stewart from the Cosmic Coast Vineyard where you preached to 2,000 people last Easter Sunday to Craigavon to a church this new? Why brother? You know why? His voice is greater than theirs. And unless his voice has preeminence in your life, you will be pulled by every other voice and you will go places that he never called you to go and do things that he never called you to do. Like Jesus, you need to learn to ignore some voices. And I know for some of you that sounds harsh because you're much nicer than I am. That's not that difficult. But for some of you, that is the most liberating thing you have heard in a long time. That you do not have to respond to every voice. You do not have to reply to every Facebook message or text. Jesus was willing to look harsh and, be, and even look rude. Why? Because he was listening to voices. If he was to listen to voices, there would be no help in what he was going to do. Look again at what he says. Ignoring... What they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. That sounds a bit trite, doesn't it? Your daughter's just died. That sounds like one of those really insensitive things people do. Christians say, it's all right. God will be with you. I know you've just lost the da- your daughter, but all things work together. It, just, it sounds a bit like that. Unless it's Jesus saying it to you. You see, if you were to come to me and say, Craig, I... I I can't pay my bills this month And the house is cold And I say how much do you need And you go I need 50 pounds Craig And I go Don't be afraid Just believe Bye (laughs) Is that helpful It's sympathetic It's a nice thing to say But it's not very helpful But if you come to me and you say I need 50 pounds And I go you know what and I'm not going to do that because <laughs> the last time I had 100 pounds in here was about 10 years ago. Uh, if I go, "You know what? You need 50, here's 100." That's not only sympathetic. Don't be afraid, just believe, here's a 100. That's something totally different. You see, when Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe, it's not just some nice wishy-washy, just go ahead, she's dead anyway, let's not worry about it. It's because he knows something that they don't know. He sees things from a different perspective than they see. And he knows that in his back pocket is resurrection power. He knows that in his back pocket is life that can overcome death. When he knows that in his hands are the healing that she needs. And what we see as the end, Jesus sees as an interruption and a blip. What we see as a permanent condition, Jesus sees as a temporary circumstance. What we see as dead, Jesus sees us just sleeping. Look at what happens. Verses 37 to 40, we're nearly done. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue, later Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? This child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. Look at that sentence. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John. We'll get to that in a second. But Jesus gets to Jairus' house and they're in the middle of mourning. Maybe you've seen some of those Middle Eastern funerals on, on, on the news. where they And some of them, they actually hire professional mourners. Because by the time the funeral comes, the family's so tired of crying. And some of you know what that's like. But you still want emotion there. So they would actually hire people who could cry like that. And they, there's, there's all this wailing, there's all this mourning, there's all this noise and commotion and and Jesus walks into the middle of it and look at how he deals with it verse 40 this is a key verse clear the room after he put them all out he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was Jesus walks into this house of Jairus where there's all this commotion, there's all this crying. And the first thing he does is he says this, everybody out. He clears the room. If you thought he was being rude before when he ignored it, this is kind of passionate, isn't it? He clears the room except of everyone he chooses to have there. Who have we got? Verse 37, he didn't let anyone in except Peter, James, and John. I feel sorry for the other nine sometimes, do you? Like you can imagine them going, yeah, we're going in here, Peter, James, and John, you come in, the rest of you go Tesco or do whatever you, you know? And they're like, what? Like, You know, like, like what, what did we do wrong? We'll, we'll get our chance next time, then he goes up the mountain of transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, you come with me, the other nine. It's like, Jesus was very clear. And I was thinking about this. Apart from Paul in the New Testament, who wrote the rest of the New Testament mostly, apart from the Gospels, Peter, James, and John. Jesus focused on those people who were going to be the key leaders in the church. And then verse 40, after he had put them out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in. So you have the father and mother. This little child, when they wake up, when she wakes up, she's going to see her father and mother. That's important. Why does Jesus clear the room? And here's what I think. Because God, Jesus knows that to see the work of God in a life or a situation, you need to remove anything that is draining faith and resisting what God wants to do in your life. And this is, this is so important. Because I have, in 27 years of being a Christian, here's what I have tried to do. If I can add, things will change. If I can get this book, if I can go to this conference, if I can get this guy to pray for me, if I can go and hear this prophet, if I can just add, add, if I can do this devotional life, if I can add, if I can go to this meeting, if I can get more involved, if I can add, 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 add. Because we tend to see spirituality as about accumulating enough things. What if actually it wasn't about adding more? What if about being close to Jesus was about removing one or two things from your life? One or two people. One or two influences. One or two situations. One or two text messages in your phone. One or two phone numbers that you keep going to delete but you won't do it. What if the greatest growth in your life is not by adding 20 things, it's about taking away one thing. Because most of us, I think, are one or two decisions away from chains in our lives, but we just refuse to do it. And Jesus walks in and he takes authority over the space. He removes anything that's not going to be helpful to what he wants to do. And I think that's the challenge God's given us today. What do you need to clear out in your life to give him space to work? See, our lives get so cluttered. Our lives get so filled with other stuff that there's so little room for what Jesus wants to do. You know, in America, decluttering has become a whole industry. One of the best selling books last year was The Life Changing Magic of Tidying Up. There's a whole thing about minimalism and decluttering. There's programs on TV. There's one. Anybody seen that program? Hoarders. Hoarders. Hoarders are people who either keep buying more and more and more and more and more. Or they don't let go of anything they've got. They just they refuse to throw anything out. They have an obsessive need. In one of the programs they found two mummified cats under the sofa. Some of you are hoarders. I think there's, there's typically two types of people. There's hoarders and dumpers. Yeah? Hoarders who just keep everything. Maybe we'll need that someday. Maybe... It'll come back in fashion. Yeah, if the 60s rolls around again, it might. You know, maybe, maybe that'll be useful someday. And 10 years later, you still haven't used it. And then there's dumpers. Dumpers are those people who are just ruthless. If I haven't worn it in three months, it's gone to the charity shop. You know, your wife, your husband, somebody comes home and they're like, where's that dress? <laughs> where's that? It's normally the other way around. Where's that coat? My winter coat. Well, you haven't worn it since last winter. It's an oxfam. Go bad, it's three quid. Um, But we have so much stuff cluttering up our lives. How much space are you going to give God to work in your life? Spiritual clutter builds up. Unresolved issues. Things from your past that you haven't dealt with. You know, sometimes we are... We're so busy trying to get different fruit in our lives. We're trying to grow fruit, but we don't realize that until we get to the root, the fruit is not going to change. Unforgiving relationships, you carry on offense. And it's very hard for Jesus to come and live in a room which is full of offense and bitterness. Unrepented sins, things you've done, things you're doing that you're just not dealing with before the Lord undisciplined lifestyle, things that you've just let get out of control, ungodly influences. Quite frankly, there's some people who shouldn't have the place in your life that they have. And it's not that we only hang out with Christians. That is not my opinion at all. But not every person needs to be in your life just because they've always been in your life or because they've been there a long time. And not every person deserves the same space in your life or they deserve the influence that they have. I heard a great talk by a guy called Paul Scanlon years ago. And it was called this. Relationships are spatial. Not special, they are special, but spatial. Relationships have a space in your life. And when we give certain relationships more space than they should have, that relationship becomes unhealthy and dysfunctional. Jesus was very deliberate about who he allowed in and who he kept out. And he even kept out some really good people. He kept out family. He kept out friends. He kept out his own followers. They were on his team. But they would add nothing to what he was trying to do. And there's some people who are in your life that you may not clear out completely. You may just start seeing them a little bit less. You may decide, you know what, those 42 text messages I get every day, I'm I'm just going to, I can't respond to all of them. Yes, they're needy, but I'm being drained. You need to clear the room of anything opposing or resisting the word of God and 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 the purpose of God in your life. And in this story, this little girl's life was at stake. If Jesus hadn't cleared the room, this little girl would probably have died. And you know what I've discovered? There's always something at stake. There's only so much space in the room. And every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. And every time you say no to something, you're saying yes to something else. I don't know if you've ever gone to take a photograph or download an app with your phone and it comes up this. Next, yeah. Yeah? Your gigs are full. And when you want to do that, when you have an app you want to download, a picture you want to take, a video you want to take, you have a choice to make at that point. Is the new thing I want more important than something that's already on my phone? Is something worth deleting for this new thing? And you need to create space. And we can try to put off clear in the room, but it just gets more cluttered. And I think God is saying to you, you know what, I want to fill your life. But when I get to your life, it's telling me there's no more room. That it's full. And unless you'd start deleting some of the stuff that's in your life, out of your life, I simply cannot do what I want to do. And we can pray about it all day, but you know what I've discovered? God generally doesn't clean the room for us. We clean the room. He gives us responsibility to do it. But if you do clear the room, New life and new hope fills the space. Look at the last two verses. Jesus took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I said to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. Death was cleared out. Life came flooding in. Despair was deleted. Hope was added. Fear was removed and joy filled the space and just as i finished who was with jesus here what three disciples i think peter learned something that day because when we get to acts chapter 9 there's a very similar situation after jesus has gone back to heaven he's died he's been raised to life he's gone back to heaven jesus or peter is, is an apostle There's a woman called Dorcas. A good woman dies. Peter's in the area. He gets called into the house. And look at what we read in Acts chapter 9. Peter went with them. When he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Now watch this. Peter sent them all out of the room. And he got down on his knees and prayed. Peter had watched Jesus and Peter had realized that if he wants to see the work of God in his life and through his life, there were some things, there were some people, there were some situations, there were some pressures that he simply needed to clear the room off. Things that were resisting or opposing what God wanted to do. And some of you today, I believe God's speaking very specifically about what he wants to clear. And he's not going to do it for you, but he's calling you to do it and he's giving you authority to do it. And your life is not going to change until you deal with that thing that you need to clear. You see, we want all of that to change. But all of that will stay the same until in here changes. And the change that you want to see out there begins in here. I said that last week and I want to say it again. Anything in here that's standing against what God wants to do will impact your life out there. I'm going to say it again. You can't live wrong and feel right. And I felt God, just as I finish here, there were two little phrases he threw into my mind this morning as I was praying through this. If you won't confront it, he won't change it. If you won't confront it, he won't change it. And if you won't clear it, he can't fill it. If you won't clear it, he can't fill it.